again, I, I renew my pledge to you that I am striving to make more headway in the gospel each week. I go in on Monday with the full intent of covering at least a chapter, and I just somehow can't make it. I, I'm working. I'm working at getting there. I always feel like I'm going to miss something that's so important. Uh, I, I just, I got to slow down and pause. I'm working at it. There's a Bible study that is ongoing, and they were going to kind of pace with the church, I think, uh, through the book of Luke, and they've met, I think it is, uh, Michael Taylor would know, they've met twice or maybe three times, and they're past where we are. So, pace duly noted. But we have a particular passage, again, once this morning, that is worthy of our attention and time to not simply gloss over or skip before we get to the Magnificat, um, that is verse 46 and following. And what we have in 39 through 45 um, fills out what we would expect, yet still be astounded by in verses 46 and following. I want to note to you that many times, um, uh, whether it be in our Law Gospel series um, a, a year, two years ago, back, whatever it be, through the book of Hebrews, it pops up yet again and again and again as we consider Christ and his greater sacrifice, his greater ministry in the New Covenant. Many times as we think of Hebrews, maybe I believe it's 11, is what we call that, that, that tremendous uh, picture of faithful saints Uh, through the book of Hebrews, we have at various times in our time together come to where we have defined faith, or we have taken time to kind of articulate what is faith. We speak of faith so often. We speak of it as a vessel indeed that we entrust into the Lord Jesus Christ, who is faith's true object. And in so doing, I just want to remind us as we consider it once again, just briefly by way of introduction this morning, as we see the actions of Mary and Elizabeth, to recall our definitions, kind of our two working definitions of faith. Sometimes we define it, and we have at varying points, in terms of its internal components. I couldn't think of a better way to kind of describe it. Um, It might not be technically best, but if I could help you in the thought of defining faith in two particular ways, one, according to its internal components, and we broke faith down to kind of say, if you were to think of faith in, in this circle, what are the components that go in and comprise faith? And that would be of what we have seen taught in Scripture is knowledge, assent, and trust. This is how we think of what's going on in faith. Is faith blind or is faith empty? And the answers to that are no. Faith is clearly comprised of a knowledge to the listener. There is something made available to you by way of knowledge and data in the gospel, in the historical Jesus, in the events of his life, his miracles, his atoning death, his resurrection, his ascension. Something is made available cognitively to your mind. There is an ascent to that interaction with the data. One ascends and affirms, this is true. What I have heard in this word of proclamation is indeed true and sure. I'm in agreement. We call that assent. And again, is it like, does it ha- how much does knowledge last? And then when does assent take over? It's simply not like we're talking, all this is occurring together is one work of faith. And then this third component, however, that is within the interaction of one hearing ascending to that knowledge, assenting to that knowledge, is finally trust. 
one not only affirms and agrees, assenting to those claims, but the final component of biblical and saving faith is one trusts wholly in that data, wholly in that person being disclosed in the gospel. This is what we would call kind of its internal components. The other way we kind of define faith or speak of biblical and saving faith is in terms of its action. So from its internal components, now we think of it in that way, we would break it down and kind of, kind of parse it out that way, and then we would think of it in terms of its action. That is what we see in someone's life actions. Again, this is an ongoing life of faith. Your life of faith or being a believer is not simply punctiliar, that you believe something in time. You are a believer. You're a believing individual. This is an ongoing aspect of repentance. This is where one sees, I hear the knowledge, I study the word, I hear it preached, we sing its truths, we fellowship as a church together, and I am led through that knowledge unto yet again a nourishment of my faith marked by a life of repentance. We speak of it in these terms, this ongoing life as a believer, and I give you this uh, again I should memorize this by now. I confuse, and sometimes I think grammarians or, or, or others smarter than I piece it together. They're the same thing. An, an acronym or an acrostic. You be the judge at this point, and you can tell me later, because I can never remember what it is. Either way, you look at the word faith and life's actions, and you would define it kind of simply as a mnemonic device, maybe. We would simply say faith is forsaking all I take him. This is the constant life action of the believer. It is the forsaking all. It isn't the, you know, I I believe, but I also love over here. I believe, but I leave belief over there when I'm interacting over here. That is incompatible with faith. Faith in life's actions is forsaking, turning away from one, whatever it be. And it doesn't even simply have to be sin in the sense of, again, forsaking where you were, forsaking what you're holding on to. Just to forsake, to put at risk all, to turn from all, whatever that all be. Finding it, however, to be in competition with him. One says to that by faith, I forsake all. And I take him. This is life's ongoing action. And here, I say all of that to say here with both Mary and Elizabeth, but particularly I want to zero in on Mary first. We see a perfect picture of both of these aspects of faith working in tandem. We see just, and I couldn't, I couldn't skip past it because it's just such a perfect picture of one plus one equal two. Where, where one does indeed hear a word from the Lord, assents and trusts in that word, banks on its integrity. And the, and, and the way in which we know that one, this Mary, banks on the integrity of that word is because we see her forsaking all and taking him. We see it give way immediately to the external actions. Notice how in the text with me, beginning in verse 36, 
I just want to read that as backup to what we're about to look at just briefly. Verse 36, here again is Gabriel speaking to the young Mary. And behold, your relative, and, and speaking now of Elizabeth, okay? So behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her. And look at the, look at the beauty of the, of, of, of the next phrase. Who was called barren. Remember Elizabeth earlier, she, she bore the reproach of being called barren. Gabriel speaks an affirming word to Mary. You know, Elizabeth, who was called barren. Now that is a, a kind of a sign or a word of affirmation to Mary's question earlier about her virginity. Again, 34 says, how will all this occur? You know that I am a virgin. I, not, not that I doubt, I'm just asking, how, how are the mechanics of all this going to work? And then he gives that beautiful picture of the Trinity at work in Mary's womb. And then he speaks an affirming word here to Mary, uh, what would have surely been an astounding word from the Lord. And he provides this word of assurance. By the way, Mary, your, your, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. Verse 37 then gives grounds for Mary believing such a tremendous word. Remember, Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Look at faith's response to the word from the Lord through the servant Gabriel. Verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, Judah, or or excuse me, Mary, you see why she made haste, right? Appropriately so. She made haste because she embraced that God can do the impossible. I want to share a graphic with you that maybe will help you with this particular text. You might be thinking first in the text that making haste is probably going to initially make sense to you. Mary hears this extraordinary announcement. She believes that everything or anything is possible with God. He can do anything. I I believe this. And I'm going to run across town and see Elizabeth. Because, right, the text says, she made haste to go see Elizabeth. But you'll notice in this map, making haste is quite a commitment. At the top is where you see Mary. Put in context a few things. I'll get there in just a moment. But she's in Nazareth. She travels from Nazareth down to the broader section of Jerusalem, where perhaps that is the village where uh, just kind of right off the corner of Jerusalem there to what would be kind of the south, never eat soggy, south waffles, southwest southwest corner, somewhere located in there. And again, not exactly sure, but that would be the village most likely um, where she's going to find Elizabeth. I want to make a couple observations here because it speaks again to life-actionable faith 
on the part of Mary. It's astounding. First note I want to make on that journey there is we have every indication in the text, or perhaps I could say it this way, we have no indication in the text that anyone went with her. She arrives at the location which she made haste to be at, and there's only one greeting at the door. Now, that doesn't eliminate specifically what we don't need to know, is that someone else went with her. Nonetheless, we have no indication anyone did go with her. From Nazareth all the way down to the southern kind of corner of Jerusalem. Secondly, if you were to look at this map, and and it's kind of off to the bottom corner, it doesn't fit here and, and, and kind of measure well. Um, the journey is down in the corner marks about a 20-mile distance. And then you, you know, do your map thing and you begin applying how many 20-mile distances occur here between uh, Mary and her journey by herself going to see Elizabeth. And it's somewhere in the range. And this is, again, because we don't know exactly the village stretch outside Jerusalem where it's located. It's somewhere between 80 and 100 miles. So 80 on the conservative, 100 uh, somewhere in there, um, appropriately so. If we were to take the fact that Mary embraces by faith what Gabriel had said to her about Elizabeth with no affirming word to her that this is true, there's nothing more concretely given her. She cannot pick up the phone. She cannot text in doubt. Are you pregnant? I heard from someone you were. She has no indication, of course, anachronistically on the Internet. To Facebook, you know, Elizabeth posted, Zachariah's excited. There's no external physical word affirming what has occurred except the word of the Lord. Astounding. If I put the third notation I wanted to mention to you is about, uh, if we were to kind of contextualize this, um, um, we would have to pick a, a, a young girl from the audience, and at this point, maybe pick Olivia. Hopefully, it's not too awkward or embarrassing. But at this point in time, either way, you can serve it this way. If we were to pick someone like that, at that point in their life, within their age scan, and then we send them to Erie on foot, that would be an astounding journey. Erie is roughly 115 miles, so it's a bit further. But I think you get the picture. It would be beyond our thinking that that would seem to make sense. I don't want us to skip over the human component. There are very real, actionable things occurring within redemptive history that are mind-blowing almost. In the actionable faith we see in the young Mary. Putting it one last kind of picture on the map here. If we step back and we count the miles and we average someone's daily speed, we would say there would be somewhere between two to three miles an hour plus sleep, taking along food, water, and some supplies. Perhaps she took a meal with her. Again, we don't need to know. It's not provided us. We can simply speculate. Would someone make haste out the door and start walking 80 miles? Unlikely. There's some calculation of what is required, some food, some water, someone perhaps helping her that we just don't need to know about. But nonetheless, it adds the color that this journey could have taken by herself six to eight days walking. And she probably briskly walked, 
as best we can guess by the fact that the text does say she made haste. At seven-day journey, but why did she do it is the bigger question. Why? Work here and yet step back from all the extraordinary pieces on the human side and simply one right answer. She believed what the word of the Lord was through Gabriel. And she was no doubt. Perhaps maybe can you imagine just even midway. I don't know. She made it, as the text will make clear in the greeting. Now think just a personal aspect of what's occurring here. When Mary met Elizabeth, Elizabeth, on the other hand, has been old enough to be Mary's great-grandmother. An extraordinary visit. If you put, again, in the human component, not a lot of experience to draw from and a lot of, not a lot of war stories to share on Mary's part. Here's Mary, like, learning what's about to occur to her, walking with the embracing the word of the Lord. Elizabeth embraced it. You remember earlier in the text, you can see in verse among the people. She embraced what the Lord had done. And then here's Mary, who hears Mary the town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth by faith embracing the word of the Lord. Not just personal, but the redemptive historical meeting. You realize at the grand scale, now going from the individual Mary and her journey up to a broader level of a personal interaction with Elizabeth and Mary together, two godly women who embrace the word of the Lord. And yet now think of it more globally in a redemptive historical event of what's occurring in the meeting of these two women. That is, there is not just a greeting between a baby and two women, that of John the Baptist who leaps in the womb. There is a greeting between two redemptive covenants. You see, there is a greeting between the covenant of the old covenant and the giving way and the greeting of the new covenant. Mary, when Mary and Elizabeth meet, will see with John that the old covenant greeted the new covenant. John was the greatest, as you know. He is the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant. He is announcing the coming of the New Covenant. He is announcing the coming of the King of the Covenant. He is announcing the Lord of the Covenant. Remember, he is great, we are told by Luke, before the Lord. But when Jesus is born, he simply is great because he himself is the Lord. It is John's job to make prepared a people for the Lord. You know, that's his mission is the last covenant prophet to say, get ready, a people prepared for the Lord. Make straight your paths because he is coming and his winnowing fork is in his hand. Repent. This is his life's mission. And you notice a wonderful picture here of how he submits unto Christ in that leaping in the womb, the greeting of the new covenant He makes prepared a people. Who's the first person in the text? He makes prepared for the coming of the Lord. In other words, he doesn't even wait until he's born to make prepared a people for the presence of their Lord. His first student is Elizabeth, his mother. Elizabeth is John's first student To be prepared for the presence of the Lord. How so? Well, you notice verse 41. Verse 40, she entered entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. 
John begins his ministry. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in the womb. The old covenant greets the Lord and master of the new covenant. He makes prepared Elizabeth for the presence of the Lord. This she later explains as you jump down in verse 44. She makes brief commentary. For behold, and this is after a little exchange of the blessing, which we're just now getting to, but verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. You see, he was working efficiently and effectively upon his own mother, preparing a people for the presence of the Lord. And this is what I want to turn to in our last um, hour and a half together is the preparation of Elizabeth. Because indeed, there are two things we need to note about the preparatory work of John upon Elizabeth in this little exchange where he is already making ready a people for the Lord. This is your Lord. And she knew that this is the indication because she makes her own comment. When you came, the baby leaped. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. There's something, two things I should mention. There's, on the one hand, I want to I look at the response of Elizabeth to the presence of the Lord, on the one hand, because it is unique to Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth is having her own experience at that point in time and in history, in this text. She has her own experience at this moment. However, Nakambeth is also more broad or more generally a foreshadowing event of every individual who places their faith in Christ. There are things in this text, as I mentioned, and we'll see each one of them, that are unique to Elizabeth. Yet they are not solely and only unto Elizabeth. They are also in Elizabeth. What we read about a character in the text is also a foreshadowing event of when the Lord is born and he does begin his ministry, each and every individual coming will be in a manner like Elizabeth in their response to the presence of the Lord. There are three particulars that I want to draw your attention to this morning about Elizabeth's response, if I could one last time, that serve to foreshadow, meaning right here she is representative of the response of all, that would include you this morning, all who place their faith in Christ as Lord. The first of three about Elizabeth's response here in her expression to the presence of the Lord when Mary walks through the threshold of the door is number one, it is a spirit-filled response. The first of what is unique to Elizabeth, yet more broadly considered as foreshadowing of each and every individual who follows the Lord by faith is a spirit-filled response. How so? Look at verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you see her commentary that follows after that, and we'll just jump into that for a moment. But uh, stop here on Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit. At this point, when, so here's the young Mary traveling 80 to 100 miles. She finally arrives, however that is, in whatever condition of excitement, and she walks through the threshold of the door. Elizabeth sees and being filled with the Spirit pronounces a blessing upon the womb. 
Hopefully you've paused at that and thought, how did Elizabeth know? And it isn't surprising. You see the answer is provided you right there in the text, so perhaps you never pause to wonder. How did Elizabeth know when she walked in the door what Gabriel had told Mary? How did she just immediate break out into blessing? Again, there's no way she knew that we know in the text that that she was told. How did she immediately fall in blessing Mary and the fruit of her womb? How did she know? There is no indication that Elizabeth knew anything of Gabriel's appearance to Mary. We are not told that Gabriel then went over to Elizabeth and said, hey, by the way, Mary's making haste. How did she then know? And you see in the text the answer is provided. It is her being filled with the Holy Spirit which enables her to know the past of which is hidden and what is to come in the birth of the baby without anyone telling her. She sees with the eyes of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit filling Elizabeth enables her to know the past events. She knows something of Gabriel's announcement and she saw into the hidden things of what is about to occur. Now, maybe at this point in time, I need to make clear, this is the part of the text that I want to mention to you that this type of filling with the Holy Spirit is, and I have this, um, quad, I, yep, one, two, three, triple underlined in my little notations here to make sure you're clear and I'm clear and we together are clear to, to one another. This aspect of the Spirit-filled response belongs uniquely, triple underlined, to Elizabeth. That is, this is not an ongoing work of the Spirit in the life of God's people. That he fills them so as to be able to look upon the past and know what occurred without someone speaking to them about what occurred in the past. This would be extraordinary. And it would be my position, at least, for sure, that this extraordinary work is not a normative work that the Spirit continues to do in this epoch of redemptive history. This is the part where, nonetheless, it is one that will foreshadow, but it is unique to Elizabeth to be able to know what was hidden in the past without anyone telling her. She just immediately knows Gabriel appeared, Mary's pregnant, and when Mary walks in the door, she's like, Mary, how blessed are you in the fruit of your womb? That kind of unique or, or immediate work of the Spirit is unique to Elizabeth. However, that does not render the entire episode of Elizabeth's response to be unique. But there is, however, still a broader principle at work here in Elizabeth's spirit-filled response. How so? Well, we understand that the Spirit's work is critical, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.3. Paul makes clear there. He says this, No one can say Jesus is Lord except how. Do you recall? No one can say it except by the Spirit. No one can do so. Now again, that is the more broad principle at work here. That the Spirit is required for one to be able to rightly identify Jesus through the preaching of the gospel as the Lord. They don't simply cognitively do it, and they don't do it immediately without preaching. They hear it in the word. Regeneration is birthed in the heart, and they, by the Holy Spirit, assent and trust upon that word that is revealed to them. 
This is the broader principle that we see in Elizabeth's response because consider how Elizabeth says exactly this in verse 43. Paul, remember, I put for you one more time. No one can truly and sincerely say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. Look at how Elizabeth says exactly that, verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The immediate application of word or stop question that I would like to put forward to each listener at this point is have you experienced the Spirit's work through the preaching of the gospel whereby you affirm Jesus is not someone else's Lord, but by forsaking all and taking him, he is your Lord. It is one, again, in the word of the gospel to hear and also to assent. Yeah, it could be true. Yet not trust that it's true for you. Jesus, speaking with Nicodemus in John 3, speaks the same way. Nicodemus, if you recall, he says to Jesus, you know, we know you're a teacher sent from God. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you cannot know that unless you be born of the flesh, a human being, and of the Holy Spirit. So is everyone who belongs to the kingdom of God. Have you experienced the Spirit's work through the preaching of the gospel where indeed you do confess and trust that Jesus is not simply Lord as a fact of history over a certain people, but he is the Lord Definitively, and he is Lord over you. This is a foreshadowing response that Elizabeth provides us in her spirit-filled response to Mary. Secondly, the second of three responses that Elizabeth provides us is a foreshadowing response of not just her or the couple of people who come immediately after, but of all who place their faith in Christ alone through the gospel. It is, number two, a Christ-centered Response. Look at verse 42 as we continue through 42 and 43. And this is an important one for us to kind of mine out a little bit. Verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? We need to note carefully one thing up front, and then we'll kind of piece through verse 42 and 43 together. We need to note carefully, number one, that Mary's elevated blessedness, and I, and, I, and I put in there quotations of elevated blessedness, the elevated aspect. We need to note carefully here of what Elizabeth is and is not saying, because a lot surrounds this in Catholic theology. So for us as Reformed Protestant, we must really be able to grapple with this text and wrestle it well and biblically understand it. And that is her elevated status of blessedness, according to Elizabeth. Look in the text if you would. You'll see quite clearly that the elevated blessedness is entirely dependent upon the fruit in her womb. So if you look at the text, notice verse 42, blessed are you among women. And we need to handle that properly. And then notice, in the very same breath, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then she goes on to explain 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That is the fruit of the womb. Luther comments, that is Martin Luther comments on a, a story around Christmas time. He makes comment this way. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. Thinking of the 13 to 15 year old Mary. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. And his reform, he didn't make good sound breakage in the Reformation. That sounds a bit Catholic. I would say to you at this point with Luther's comment that this is certainly true to this point. That Mary is indeed the most blessed woman who has lived on the earth. There's an important distinction here that needs to be made, isn't there? It isn't the denial that Mary is a woman in human history, but however, her blessedness is limited. You among women. In this this is an extraordinary blessing. This is why Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women. Not blessed are you as divine. Blessed are you as sinless. Blessed are you as holy above all. Blessed are you as our mediator in heaven. But rather, blessed are you among women. Mary understands this blessing as well. Look at verse 48. She notices her own blessedness among humanity also. Verse 48. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. There is a 2,000 history, 2,000 year old history that is occurring even now that Mary is still regarded, and rightfully so, as the most blessed woman in the human race. However, to that very important distinction that needs to be made in the text, and this is where Catholicism falls short. When I said to you earlier, it is an issue of her elevated blessedness, I am noting a distinction within her blessedness that I think the text warrants, certainly not only here, but everywhere else in the testimony of Holy Scripture, that Mary's blessedness is bound to her humanness and her ability to give birth or her high calling and the grace that is shown to her to give birth to the Messiah. The elevated blessedness, however, is simply all about the fruit of her womb. It isn't about Mary, as we spoke last week, her condign merit. It isn't that she simply has merit, that God is bound to reward. This type of Mariology or Mary-affirming theology is wrong. It's not taught in this text or any other text. She does not possess a condign merit where God is required to favor her. And that, that is what he's doing here. Rather, the elevated blessedness of Mary is all about the fruit of her womb. So, let me say it this way. While it is true that Mary is indeed the most blessed among women in human history, it is also true that savingly, Mary is no more privileged. We must hear this as Protestant. Savingly, Mary is no more privileged than any other person who by grace through faith, trusts in Christ alone as their Lord and their Savior. While indeed 
She is a blessed among women, savingly. She is no more privileged than any other person who by grace through faith places their trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. This is the comment that Elizabeth is making in the very same breath. Indeed, Mary, blessed are you, but remember, among women, blessed, Mary, is the fruit of your womb, whom then she identifies in verse 43 as my Lord. Mary's response, or Elizabeth's response to Mary, foreshadows the response of all who place their faith in Christ, and it is a christ centered response. I forsake all and I take not Mary and Jesus. I forsake all and I take Jesus alone. This is the comment that Elizabeth is foreshadowing for us in the text for we would find finally in summation of this it would be ungodly sinfully idolatrous to worship anything about Mary in any sense at all or to place a category of righteousness upon her that is unknown to end to our time as a foreshadowing response that is unique to Elizabeth in time but foreshadows to Christ through the gospel and that is thirdly it is a faith affirming response reminds me of my wearing sweaters I always think it's a good idea and it never and then if I ask Dan to turn down the air, you all come under the sweaters. It's unfortunate. Keeps me cozy. But a bit and final of our time together. And that is what Elizabeth importantly stands out to foreshadow for each and every one of us this morning in the hearing of the gospel in this very moment. It is a faith-affirming response. And what I mean by that is simply this. Elizabeth affirms that faith is required and that faith is blessed. She affirms in her response to Mary that faith is required and that such faith is blessed. You notice verse 45. And blessed is she who believed. Can you imagine how, 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 what a, a beautiful moment that is? for the young Mary to hear from the elderly Elizabeth a word of affirmation. You know, sometimes you just, you need that affirmation. Speaking affirmation is important into one another's lives. That, 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 you, that you see fruit, that you see evidenced the work of the Spirit and you practice affirmation. You, you learn the skill of being able to appropriately speak into someone's life when you see the work of the Spirit evidently there. And again, even uh, a mother to a mother, or in this case, you know, a cousin mother to a young coming-in mother, she gives a word of affirmation. Verse 45, as you see then, Elizabeth graciously and humbly affirms Mary in believing what must have seemed to be an absolutely impossible word from the Lord. We don't know exactly what's taking place in the house. According to verse 39 and 40, she's in the house of Zechariah, but we don't know if Zechariah is present. Right? 
So we're unsure. Again, to my earlier comment, we don't know if somebody came on this journey with Mary or not. We're unsure. I say all that to say, as Elizabeth affirms Mary, there's still a bit of a contrast being drawn here. And we don't know if Zechariah is present. We don't know simply if he's in another room. We don't know if he's around the corner. But I would think at the ecstatic noise of Mary and Elizabeth greeting joyfully and praising and singing and dancing. Who all knows what's taking place at this point in time when Mary is pregnant with the Messiah and John has indicated such to Elizabeth and Elizabeth is seeing the old covenant is dying out and the new covenant is here with the presence of our Lord. Zechariah, if he's anywhere on the premises, he probably drew near. It would be somewhat a safe bet to make. And yet, now think of what you just heard in verse 45. If Zechariah is around. Remember, at this point, Zechariah can't speak, so he can't bless Mary himself, and he can't hear. But surely he sees the dancing, and he probably hasn't seen Mary in a while. And so, Elizabeth does say, Blessed is she who believed. That there will be a fulfillment of what was spoken from the Lord. So why is this written in here in a contrasting way with Zechariah? Who you recall earlier in verse 18 said, how will I know this is true? Elizabeth blesses Mary. Affirming faith. You believe that there would be a fulfillment. Zechariah, how he heard, or what Elizabeth's comment exactly, precisely is, if there is the contrast. An old priest who knew better, yet experienced the word and rose with faith. Blessed are you, Mary, you believed. It is written that you might be certain, remember? Certain about 45, certain of this. That doubtful... This is the contrast that's set up between him and Mary. That is a word, how will I know he'll really care? How do I know he'll really provide? How do I know that he'll really complete his faithful work that he started in me? Rise in unbelief to his great and precious promises. Yet as we see great contrast that stands out against a doubt-filled response to the word of the Lord is the faith filled from the Lord. Blessed are you, Mary. You out and you're seeing the city of man or the the, the city of man just kind of melting down all around you in different ways. <laughs> Yet you know the tremendous word of the Lord of what is to come. How are you doing in your pilgrim's journey? Is your response to the extraordinary things of God faith-filled, a faith that is being nourished, a faith that is being assured? For a faith that is assured in the word of the Lord is met with increased blessing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.